welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We begin a study through a new book in the New Testament this morning. We'll begin 1 John. And I'll just read the very first verse as we go through an introduction to the book today. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. Hear with me the word of God. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is God's Christ-revealing word. May we see him as it is taught in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as I said, uh, we are going to begin studying a new Bible book today. Having completed Luke, you can relax, I chose a short one. (laughs) That's an inside joke for some of you who have been here 10 years. (laughs) Here we take uh, an expositional approach to the Bible. Uh, We teach it book by book and go through verse by verse so you can understand God's word as the Holy Spirit put it together and Allow God's full counsel to come into your life. And so we continue. And First John has uh, been chosen to, to go in next. And uh, let me just begin my comments as I take some time today. And we're just going to kind of get an overview of the book today, which I've always done with you when I've introduced a new book to you. Talk about the person that wrote it, the reason they wrote it, what, uh, what the, the touchstones, or like I like to say, the rocks and the river are in the book to help you understand how it comes together. So as I open it for you, you'll know where we are in all of this. And, and then next week, we'll, we'll begin going through verse by verse. But as I uh, think about this book and want to explain it to you, I want to start with a couple of social observations. Uh, one social observation is this. Uh, even though a lot of us don't believe this, Younger people flourish when they have relationships with older people. Now, uh, our society fights against that. Isn't it true that our society segments every sector of our ages and segments every sector of who we are as we grow in human life? Part of that's just a marketing device to concentrate the, the interest and the buying power of people. But our Western society, particularly in the United States, we segment people away. And a lot of times that results in in different people in age, they even have a word for it, cohorts, age cohorts, (laughs) not relating across the ages and gaining from one another and giving to one another, younger to older and older to younger. But my social observation, having been in in the human condition now and, and being a pastor for over 30 years, is that something really magic can happen when older people are together with younger people and they pour the spiritual experience of their lives into younger people. I'm not just talking about the family dynamic of grandparents with with grandkids and so forth. I'm just talking about in the body of Christ. 
Now, thankfully, we have a lot of ministry structures here at Valley Forth that kind of merge the ages. And so a lot of this magic is something that I get a ringside seat to every week, and I can see and watch as God allows seasoned believers, people that have been through some battles, pour into the new struggles of younger believers, people younger in life. And so I see it a lot. In fact, I treasure it. Now, something you can know about me is that for some reason, I've always related upward in the age spectrum. Pretty much all my life from my teen years onward, I, I kind of graduated ahead of people and I was always ahead of people age-wise in school. And so I always was relating upward in the age spectrum. And I've always chosen friends who are a little bit older than me. And I've always been able to, to, to latch on to a mentor. And so uh, I, I know from experience the riches of linking your spiritual life into the relationship uh, you can have with somebody who's a little farther, uh, a little more battle-worn, or in a little, a little, little more, little more Bible-wise. How about that? And I've always built those relationships, and God has blessed me with them. And today, I have relationships not only in our ministry, but outside of our church, mentoring relationships, accountability relationships with several men right here in this city, older than me, and who've been through more than I have, and I build those regularly into my world. But maybe you're not so fortunate. Maybe your, your, your relational life is, is, is smaller, and, and in fact, as you hear me, you're saying, man, you're a younger man, or, or you're, a, you're a woman in, in, in merging through parenting and feeling alone in that battle, whatever it might be. Or you're a single person trying to navigate in our crazy world today what singleness and godliness mean. And maybe you're hearing me talk about this and you're saying, wow, what I wouldn't give to have a series of conversations with a wise spiritual man, somebody that has known Christ through all kinds of things and can pour into my life the wisdom I need. Well, uh, you're going to find that. In fact, some of us have always uh, also had in our, uh, in our mind's eye the, the, the dream of what would it be like to sit out with somebody who actually knew Jesus in the beginning. You ever wondered about that? A lot of us say, what would it like to be, be like to sit down with a biblical hero, somebody from the Bible past, and, and just latch onto them and find out what it was really like to see Jesus on the hillside, what it was really like to watch a miracle, what it was really like to see Christ preach. Well, you're going to get both of those factors as we go through 1 John. You're going to get to have conversations and listen to the wisdom and insight of a spiritually experienced, godly man. Every verse we overturn in this study over the months to come is going to be a goldmine of that. But these are words that also come from, as he said in the verse that I just read to you, somebody who was with Jesus Christ from the beginning. Somebody who knew Jesus Christ, walked with Jesus Christ, was able to put their hand on the physical shoulder of the Son of God and who will tell us what it was like. So we'll get both in this study. This epistle is written by John the Apostle, one of the original 12. The one who is actually closest to Jesus, we find out as, as you study the scripture. He was, in my opinion, the man who possessed the deepest heart relationship with the earthly Jesus of all the disciples. 
This is a letter written by him, not only as an eyewitness of who Jesus was, but he wrote it in his early 80s, we believe. So he also had decades of experience of living the Christian life the way you and I do, simply with the indwelling Holy Spirit, but facing the outer culture and all the lessons he learned. We're going to get all of that. Yeah, just... As I've already begun my study, I just kind of find myself sitting back in my chair in my office saying, wow, how in the world do I begin to teach this to my people? It is so rich. It is so deep. But we're going to walk through it together. I found as I looked through the book this week that it's filled with two things, encouraging principles about the Christian life and powerful warnings about the enemies of Christianity, about the dangers you face in the Christian life. So encouraging principles and powerful warnings, and we'll walk through that over and over again throughout this this book, written by an aging apostle. Now, one other social observation. Have you ever noticed that older drives drive classic cars? (laughs) Any of you ever notice this? I mean, you see a classic going by, whether it's a Shel- that Shelby Cobra that I see going by on Sprig all the time. When the, when, this is the first sign of spring in Spokane Valley, is that old dude driving that Shelby Cobra Custom. You, know, you don't know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there you go, right on. Some of you people need to get out more often, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> or the nice 50s classics that just gleam. Or the 30s and the 40s even. Just, you, you know, you just, I, I go around the block to follow them again because I just kind of want to connect to that. And every time you look in the driver's side, it's an old dude driving the classic car. I, now you may say, well, you're typecasting. Well, yes, I am. <laughs> old guys, uh, thank you. Old guys drive classic cars. Now, you say, well, how in the world is all this connecting? Your social observations are funny, Pastor, but how is this connected to this ancient book? Well, um, John was a classic, and I think you're going to find at the end of our study that all these great principles that he puts into 1 John, they compose something that I would call classic Christianity. Here's a guy that lived it longer than anybody writing at the time who had seen Jesus. He was around 20 years old when Jesus was crucified and risen. He's in his early 80s now, 60 plus years of being on the highway for Jesus. This guy put together what it's like to know Jesus, and he he gives us what I would call classic Christianity from a classic Christian. He gives you the richness of the faith, unlike many other writers. And so that's the the dominant theme you're going to see, encouraging principles and some powerful warnings. So let me walk through it today, and in my introduction, I want to let this all come into a picture frame by telling you about three things, like I most often do. (laughs) John's life, his letter, we're going to do an overview of it, and the legacy that he has with it. In other words, why is it relevant and impactful today, 1,900 years later? Let's take a look, first of all, at John's life. Um, you take a look at your Bible, I hope you've got it open or, or running on your, your device or on the app. And my Bible says the first letter of John, or 1 John. So, uh, and yet when you take a look at the book, his name never appears in it. Now that's unusual, isn't it? Many times you know you're reading an epistle from Paul because he says, I, Paul, along with Timothy or Sylvanus or whoever is with him, he, he identifies himself in his letters 
And, and the Gospels are, are, are note, noted in that sense as well, but mostly the epistles, they almost always have the name of the author. This doesn't. How can we be sure that it was written by the Apostle John? Well, um, I'll just put it this way. Nobody who knew anything about uh, Old Testament, uh, New Testament history has ever doubted that John wrote this epistle. The whole early church knew that. In fact, Polycarp, who was an actual disciple of John, who knew John alive, and when John was his, his disciple and teacher, Polycarp was what we call a church father, somebody that after the apostles passed, took on the teaching and led the church in the early decades and century or two of the church. Polycarp declared that John wrote this epistle. But all church historians have looked at it and said, yep, John the apostle, apostle without doubt, wrote this one. Let me give you one quote from one author. The epistle does not identify the author, but the strong, consistent, and earliest testimony of the church, church history, ascribes it to John, the disciple and apostle. He's anonymous in the letter, but actually, this author writes, his anonymity strongly affirms the early church's identification of the epistle with John the Apostle. For only someone of John's well-known and preeminent status as an apostle would be able to write with such unmistakable authority, expecting complete obedience from his readers without clearly identifying himself. In other words, John's fame preceded his name. When people got an epistle like this, if they were told it was from John, it rang with who John was because John was kind of one of the most widely known teachers and preachers in that time. He was well known to the readers, this author says, so he didn't need to mention his name. So that's, that's just how we accept it over, over history. John the Apostle, one of the original apostles, the apostle whom Jesus loved so deeply. Now, let me go a little bit into his life, and, and a lot of this will fill in the blanks for some of you, but for others of you, you probably already know this, but John and James came onto the scene at the same time in the Gospels. Uh, James was the older brother of John, and together they were the sons of Zebedee, who owned a fishing business on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And John and James were two of those who Jesus came to on the, the, the shoreline of Galilee and said, follow me. And they put it all down and followed him. They left their fishing life, and they went, and they were led into a preaching life. So they were Jewish they were fishermen from Galilee in the northern region of Israel, and Jesus called them into an early discipleship relationship with them. So again, John goes way back in his walk with Christ. The Gospels tell us that John was one of the three most intimate associates of Jesus. Who were the other two? Peter and James. So Peter, James, and John, often you find them together, and Jesus took them aside and gave them deeper teaching. They alone were the witnesses when Jesus went through the transfiguration on the mountain where he, for a fleeting moment, opened up his divine glory, and, and they, they were overwhelmed by the light of the glory of God because Jesus was the God-man. They alone were brought close enough to Jesus in his hours of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. John and James and, and Peter, those three were allowed by Jesus to come within a muffled cry of where Jesus was going through the agonies of Gethsemane. And so they had special privileges and a special awareness and knowledge of what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived. Now, in addition to the three epistles John wrote, you, you may be aware that he also wrote the gospel that John talked about, the gospel of John. 
He wrote the Gospel of John and three other epistles. And in the Gospel of John, John doesn't use his name either. Wanting to be humble in the midst of all of this, as he talked about so many others, he simply called himself the disciple, can you complete it, whom Jesus loved. Now he said that out of humility, but also out of gratitude. It seemed that Jesus poured an extra measure of knowledge and relationship and affection into John. And you say, well, why was John favored? My opinion, John wasn't favored. John just leaned in for more of Jesus than the others did. I mentioned last week that really, when it comes to the Lord, you get as much of God as you want. You have a de- as deep a relationship with him as you want. He'll always be pressing you for more, but you can have as much as you want. Peter was uh, humanly impulsive and trusted in his own strength so much that we mostly, we mostly see Peter leaping forward, sometimes into problems for everybody. John was more retiring in his spirit and was quieter, although he was pretty tough on, on things as well. Peter would leap forward, but John leaned in and leaned into a relationship with Jesus that deepened. In fact, we know that he was the one that was leaning on, on the chest of Christ in that final evening when Jesus was betrayed. So John had a unique relationship with Jesus. It was so unique that the Bible tells us that for sure John was there at the foot of the cross during Christ's suffering on the cross. Peter might have been there watching from a distance according to Peter's words in Acts, but we know that John was there within speaking distance with the Savior. And there with John was Mary, the mother of Jesus. You remember as I taught this to you in the Gospels? And Jesus in his agonies told John, You take care of my mother. She's your mother now. So Jesus entrusted his mother to John. That's how deeply their relationship ran. And John ushered Mary away from the final hours and moments of that cross and took her to his home in Jerusalem. And church tradition tells us that John stayed in Jerusalem. He started the Jerusalem church some 50 days later on the Pentecost. He backed up Peter. Peter, when Peter was preaching, John was baptizing probably. And they went and began to lead the church in Jerusalem. He got jailed with Peter for the the first time any Christian leader was jailed. John and Peter were jailed in Acts chapter 3 and 4. And and he went on from there to help lead the church and teach the church. And he stayed in Jerusalem. Church history tells us until Mary died. Took care of her in in his home, devoted himself to her until she passed away. And then he went out into the the broader Christian world where Paul had planted a lot of these churches in the broader Roman world. And church history tells us that he came to to the church at Ephesus, which Paul and Timothy had started. Paul started it, and then Timothy came along and followed Paul's ministry along with others. History tells us that John went to that church in Ephesus and strengthened it over many years. Out of it, there were six satellite churches, you could call them. We call them that these days but they actually had the pastor in each one of them. So there were satellite churches, and so there were seven churches kind of in a ring around what's called Asia Minor. You might recognize that from another part of your Bible, Revelation 2 and 3, where God gave a revelation to John, and he gave letters to the seven churches, Ephesus being the leading one. And those were all churches that were founded by John or by others through Paul's ministry. And John was kind of overseeing all of those from his headquarters in Ephesus. He served for decade upon decade, serving, teaching, and suffering. Now, church tradition 
says that when John was in his advanced age, he was living and actively writing still at Ephesus. And the tone of the epistle supports that because how often do you find in in 1 John, you're going to see that he calls the believers my little children. Some of you remember that. Hey, if you're in your 80s and you've been through it all for Jesus, you can call anybody a little child you want. And that's the way he did it over and over again. One author wrote this, John's epistles uh, are dated as occurring soon after he composed his gospel. So John wrote the gospel of John first and then the the epistles. Now, when was the gospel of John written? Some date the gospel during the latter part of the first century, and uh, that's probably true. So it was in between 90 and 95 AD. How do we know that? Well, two things happened. One was a lot of the heresies that John combats in this epistle, which we're going to learn all about, I'll introduce them today, those heresies had bubbled up in the last 30 years of the Christian church since its founding. So the church was founded in AD 30 to 33, right around then. I don't know exactly, but that's when Pentecost Sunday happened and Peter went preaching and the church started. Paul led and ministered in those churches along with Peter. They were the two primary leaders. Churches being founded in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way through the regions of Israel, and then Paul punching it out into all the regions of Rome, all the way through the greater Roman Empire. And Paul ministered uh, from about 35 AD all the way to about 58 or 60, 60 to 64, right in there, and he was executed. From then on, the great light of the church was Peter, and then Peter died a year after that, and then the greater light was John. And so from around the early 60s to the early 90s, you've got 30 years of time where John was the beacon of the church. And all the other disciples, one after the other after the other, were martyred, executed sometime between 58 and, and, and the early, uh, early 80s AD. So John was the only one left. He wrote his gospel in the early 90s because heresies had begun to break out. We're going to talk about those false teachings. One of them was was, would later become known as Gnosticism, and that's going to be a big problem in this church we're going to find, and that began to erupt in the 80s and 90s. So John addresses Gnosticism, or the beginnings of it, in this epistle, so the experts believe he wrote it in in the late 80s, early 90s. There was another great persecution that broke out called the persecution of Domitian, who was a vicious Roman emperor. That started in AD 95. We believe if John was going through that, he would have written about it in his epistle. He doesn't. So you can put it between AD 90 and 95. That's when he wrote it. And he was in his early 80s, late 70s, early 80s at least. He wrote it from Ephesus, and it was likely that it was written to all those churches that I mentioned. So John was actively ministering among a lot of different churches. He was the sole remaining apostolic survivor, one author writes, who had intimate eyewitness association with Jesus throughout Christ's earthly ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. His eyes had seen it all. The church fathers like Justin Martyr and Arrhenius and Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius tell us that John stayed at Ephesus in Asia Minor carrying out an extensive evangelistic program overseeing many of the churches that had risen, just like I told you, that circle of churches, the seven. And he conducted an extensive writing ministry. And that's when he wrote first the Gospel of John, then first, second, and third John. You see them all in a row toward the end of your Bible. 
And then, because of his influence, because he was the beacon of the church, he was exiled to an island called Patmos after he had written the gospel and these epistles. He was sent to an island called Patmos where they mined minerals and he was treated as a slave. The Roman government thought, separate John from the churches and you'll shut him up. Well, the Lord God can appear anytime, anywhere. Little did they know that the Lord Jesus Christ would personally appear to John in his lonely cell on the island of Patmos. Now Jesus had John all to himself, no churches to worry about, no people to shepherd. And Jesus had a one-on-one with John that turned into the book of Revelation. How long John lived after that, we can't say. It was his final work, and it fittingly so became the final piece of the Bible you have, the great sweeping summary of God's plan for the ages, all put together through that wonderful revelation. Sometime after that, church history and tradition says that John was so old and frail that they released him from that island prison on Patmos, and he came in his old age back to Ephesus. One author writes, the church father Papias had direct contact with John and described the aged John in his final days as, quote, a living and abiding voice. As the last remaining apostle, John's testimony was highly authoritative among the churches. Many eagerly sought to hear the one who had firsthand experience with the Lord Jesus. You know, I I look at John, and he was a perfectly aged mixture of the old thunder that he had when he was young. And you'll see it here, because he goes after these heretics with a hammer. But now it's been folded over with the tender, broken love of someone who has suffered but seen Jesus. And that's why the church called him at the end. He was the apostle of love. One of my favorite stories from church history is is told of of the church at Ephesus when John was in his final days. He was so old that he could no longer walk, and and he he was on a on a what they called a litter, a, a bed that they could move around. And when the church at Ephesus, the house churches would meet, and then occasionally they would gather all of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, in a in a big meeting hall to hear teaching. And when they gathered, the the, the believers would just call out his name. John, John. And they'd bring the aged John out on that little portable bed to the front of the congregation. And someone would cry out, Dear Father, just a word. And it was said that all John would say and could say was, Little children, love one another. And that's what he tells us in this book. What a life. And, oh boy, I'll tell you, when we get into the greatness of it, you're going to see what a book. So that's John's life. With your Bible before you, let me walk you through John's letter. Okay, the first question you might ask is, well, first John, what does that mean? Well, I've already kind of let it out, that there are three other epistles, first, second, and third John. This is the major one. It's, it's the fuller one with doctrine, and the others are very short. It's thought that he sent this one around as his main teaching, and the other two were sort of like personal notes that were added on 
and in the same package that was sent church to church. And they were personal notes, as we'll find as we study them, to church leaders about personal things, and they're very short. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Doubtless, John, the prolific author that he was and the, the influence that he was, sent out many other letters, as did all the other apostles. But these three were inspired by the Spirit as Scripture. These three remain as the one that the church recognized as God's Word. 1st John. It's not written to any particular church. That's another thing you'll notice. A lot of Paul's epistles, he, he, he definitely indicated to the Colossians or to the believers in Ephesus or whatever. Here, there's no church listed. And so the question is asked, well, who did he write it to? And the best guess that we have is this is what's called a general epistle. It was filled with such truth that applied in so many ways that the church passed it around. So it, it had general benefit for all the churches. And so we think that it was first sent to the church from the church at Ephesus where John wrote it. It was read in that congregation, then copied. They kept their copy, and then copies were sent to each of the six other churches in that crescent in Asia Minor, and they were read from John the aged one to that church. And then as often would happen, the words of the apostles, knowing that they were given by the Spirit, they would make very, very accurate copies of that letter, so the letter stayed with that church, but then they they would take copies and send them out to other smaller churches, and so it made its way everywhere. Today, we would call that going viral, and uh, that's what this epistle did. It was copied everywhere. So John wrote the Gospel of John. What a majestic, majestic, deep water look into who Jesus was. Then he wrote 1 John, which we'll see is one of the great doctrinal uh, landing points in all of the New Testament. Then 2nd and 3rd, and then Revelation. I put all that together and I thought, wow, how much we would have lost if John had quit. If he'd quit early. Think about it. We're all tempted to, right? John's greatest writing ministry, the time when the Spirit came down upon him as Christ promised in John 16, brought to his mind what Jesus taught and brought to his heart what God wanted to put into his word, that didn't happen until John was almost 80 years old. He'd been through hell twice or more in his life. He poured himself out. He pastored all kinds of churches. He taught all kinds of people, gone through all kinds of suffering, been worn out more times than he could remember, thought it was over more times than he could remember. Wouldn't you be tempted at that point to say, Jesus, thank you for loving me and using me, but I'm kind of (laughs) done. If he had done that, your Bible would be a lot lighter the greatest, the deepest gospel, this fantastic book we're going to study, and the ending, Revelation. How much we would have lost if John had stepped out of the path. It reminds me of what could be lost if you quit. Or if I do. You don't know about what God's plans are and desires are to work through your life. You have no authority or say over it. If you love him, you serve him. That's the reason. That's the context of timing. So much could be lost if you quit. You have no idea what God has yet to do. You have no idea what his plan 
finishes with, you hold on to him. He may be about ready to do a work or write a story through your life. I was so encouraged by that. Well, the book, the letter, it's been a big challenge for Bible students over the years. Um, This may be the most impossible New Testament epistle to outline of all of them. Close, close, other one would be James. It's really difficult to, to, to figure out an outline or a plan to this. There's no theme to it. You can't outline the segments of it really well so that they just flow. I mean, there's outlines, but they don't flow like some of the epistles that Paul wrote. I mean, well, unlike the gospel we just finished studying, there's no unfolding story. There's no events that follow each other and build on each other. There's no timeline like Luke followed, sort of, and Matthew follows better. There's nothing like the book of Acts, which, which is a timeline of the acts of the Holy Spirit. Those are easier to read and easier to, to, to lay out and outline. And unlike all the epistles of Paul, who was trained in argument and logic and, and who was a, a, a teacher that took people from point to point, you don't see any of those lines of argument here like you do in something that Paul would have written. All you get when you start with 1 John, he hits you right at the running lights from the beginning. Bang! That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. And from that point on, all to the end, it's point or principle or challenge or warning, one right after the other, right after the other. Some of them only take two verses and he's on to something totally different. It's just like this bang, bang, wham, all, all the way through. Some of it's challenging, some of it's comforting. So how do you put all this together? I mean, there's all kinds of scholars that have tried all kinds of ways of explaining it. Some talk about 1 John as a book of ever-widening spirals. How about that? I didn't even go there. I thought, you know, no, I'm sorry. I I have a factory issue brain. I can't even understand what that guy means. Ever-widening spirals of augmented argumentative principles. I'm going, what? Other people say he just he, he hits certain things that are a big concern to him, and then he returns to them. You'll see subjects that you thought he was done with in chapter 1. Boom, in chapter 3, it appears again, and he adds something else on. So you could say he's the king of circling back. That's, that's, one, way, that's one of the easier ways I've got of looking at this. We're going to see that happen over and over again. The best way I put it, and here's my deep theological mind for you, John wrote sort of like a Dutch uncle talks. You know what a Dutch uncle is? Some of you have that guy in your past. I looked it up. What's a Dutch uncle? Someone who is blunt but benevolent. That was the definition. I've had some of these. I had one when I was younger in my world. He's an older guy usually in the family circle. He's blunt, and he's always telling you things you need to remember or stuff you ought to understand as you go out there in life. And he's the king of this phrase. One more thing. And he's kind of crusty. There's not a lot of honey dripping off his words. Usually they just kind of come up the side of your head right around your right ear. And you're with the Dutch uncle, and he's the kind of guy you sidle away from at Super Bowl parties, you know, because he's just always talking. I get the feeling that John, toward the end of his life, was a guy that knew what was coming and a guy that knew what his churches were going to go through and knew he was going to so go see Jesus soon. And so he was telling them, these are the things you really need to know, beloved, because things are coming and things are happening, and I just want you to get it all from me. And that's what First John is. It's point after point, warning after warning, comfort after comfort. And then when you think he's all done, he, you find him saying, and another thing about that. So watch that as we go through the book. 
Now you say, well, okay, how does that help me understand your theme of classic Christianity? Well, I'll just unite it under two things, and you'll see them on the app or in the outline or on the screen behind me. I did find two key purposes and some key points. Now we're going to go through some, some, some verses real quick, and I know we're running on time, but we'll get there. Two key purposes, in my opinion. Number one was to encourage true faith. To encourage these Christians with what he had learned about classic Christianity. Every time you see the phrase, my little children, encouragement, you just get a nugget right there. It's one of the ways you can track that through the book. So first objective was to encourage people in their true faith. But the second was to identify false faith. And this is the warning part that you see come up over and over again about false teaching. So he encourages true faith. I'd call that classic Christianity. And he warns them about how to identify false faith, which is counterfeit Christianity. How do you find that in the book? Wherever you find the words, whoever says. Usually when John says, whoever says, those are the people he's getting ready to blow out of the water. So you can watch that as the book flows. Some, some key points. Really difficult here. Lots of people disagree on this. Some commentators seem to unify around three pur- purpose points or pr- key points, and I'm going to give them to you. The first is, this is what the Dutch uncle talks about and then comes back to. You'll see him come back to this over and over again. What it means, and the first is joyful living. He talks about what a joy it is to walk with the risen Savior. Now, where do we see that? Chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's one of the greatest earthly descriptions of Jesus you'll ever see. That which we've seen and heard, we saw and heard Jesus, and now we proclaim also to you what he, who he was and what he taught, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You can join in our classic Christianity, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, and here it is, don't miss it. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's been a joy, John said, through, through 70 plus years of my life, from when I was a 20-year-old kid on the Sea of Galilee, To a 90-year-old guy, it's been a joy to know Jesus. And I want you to know why. I want you to join in our joy, he says. Some manuscripts say your joy. I'll take both. (laughs) He wanted them in on the greatness of joyful living. So he wanted them to find out about who Jesus is. Second point is loving living. In other words, he wanted them to not only love Jesus, but love others, the great second commandment. He wanted them to be obedient to Jesus. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. Here comes the joyful part. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. God doesn't want you to live apart from his will in your life. John is saying, listen, God wants real obedience from you. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so John wants them to know, listen, he loves you, and he wants you to live for him. And there is a power in your life that now enables you to do that. So if joyful living is all about knowing who Jesus is, 
Loving living is all about knowing who you are in Christ. We're going to find that out as we study the book. And then the third is what I would call confident living. Knowing that when you know Jesus, you know all you need to know, and you can be confident about the future. Chapter 5, verse 13. Many say this is the key verse in the whole book. I, I kind of disagree. I think the three ones I've touched on are key. But he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So confident living, knowing who you know, knowing what you believe, and not being able to be deceived by false teachers. All three of those passages, if you're looking for something links them together, is the phrase, I write these things to you. So if you're looking for the purposes in his book, those are the three best places to go. Now you're going to grow a lot, and he wanted them to grow a lot from what he was going to teach them, because there's a third, third thing under this whole thing of the letter. His purposes, his points, and then there's some key problems. Now here, we're going to spend just a few minutes getting into some detail that may be really strange to you or new to you, but it's about the the problems that John had to confront. You see, John taught them that if you, if you know Jesus, you can live a life that's joyful and loving and confident. And if God intends for his people and his churches to be people that are joyful, loving, and confident, then you can bet that Satan will try to distract, damage, and destroy all that. Right? He's going to go right to the churches to do it. He's going to confuse believers, distract believers, and damage them and keep them from all that God has. And one of the greatest ways he does it is by bringing false teaching into the church. And that's the other side of why John wrote this epistle, because these churches, all seven of them, were being beaten up by false teachers. If you read in the book of Revelation, you see this happening in multiple churches. So what we've got to do is you've got to look at the epistle and what it tells us about false teachers, and I'll take you through a few of these just in just a moment and show that to you. That's what happened to these churches. It's a recurrent part of 1 John. So we need to know a little bit about the error that was going on. Um, Ephesus, where the churches started from, was an intellectual center of pagan thought and, and non-Christian philosophy, obviously. Now, when Paul planted the church in Ephesus some 30 years before or more, in Acts 20, when he was leaving, and he said, I'm praying for you because out of your own midst will come people teaching false things to lead you astray. And that is indeed what happened. Paul died, I think, around AD 64. John wrote, let's say, in the early 90s. So you got, you got 30 years in which Paul's presence was gone. Peter soon faded. John was the only one. And these false teachers rose. And one of the things that they taught was something that would later become known as Gnosticism. How many, just for my encouragement, have heard the word? Okay, great. That's, that's awesome. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It, had, uh, it was a multiplex of problems, a multiplex of deception. And uh, it was virulent, and it was going through the churches at the time, and it would, it would trouble the church for 300 years. John was seeing it, and he writes in this epistle to confront it. Now, hold on, because I'm going to go through a little history, but at the very end here, I'm going to show you why this is still a problem today. Aren't you interested? Do this. Yes, I'm interested. 
It was, it was influenced by philosophers like Plato and us, others. It advocated a number of false ideas. One was dualism, which said that the physical body is inherently evil, but that the human spirit was good. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, yeah. How many people do you know? Most people you know in our secularized but very spiritual society say that all people are inherently good. That comes from the early roots of Gnosticism. And the body was evil, but the spirit is good. And as a result of that, there were false teachers moving through the churches that said, well, Jesus then could not have been God and man. Because if he took on a human body, human bodies are evil. And we can't conceive of that. So his physical body must not have been real. It must have been some kind of ghostly apparition that fooled everybody. So it throws away the virgin birth, doesn't it? That solves the whole problem. So they denied the virgin birth. And they said that he had some kind of ethereal body. It comes from another idea called docetism, which is a Greek word which meant to appear. So they mixed all this together. And they said Jesus really wasn't truly a physical person. Now, that blows up a lot of things, which I'll show you in a minute. But just to show you that John was dealing with that, go to chapter 1 again. What did I just read to you? Jesus, John starts out with John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He was physical, John said, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John starts out by blowing up Gnosticism. People have been telling you this. I was there. Jesus Christ was as real as I am. He was in a physical body. It's not a contradiction. It's not a problem. There's other places where he does it. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. We won't go through that because of time. There was another aspect of, of Gnosticism. Some other Gnostics believe, well, okay, Jesus had a physical body, but he wasn't really God. He wasn't really God. The, the God spirit, they called it the Christ spirit, just came down on him and stayed with him for a period of time and then left before he went through crucifixion because no God could go through crucifixion. What, what a shame-bearing experience that would be to a God. So Jesus was just a man. But when he was baptized, the Christ spirit came down upon him when he came up out of the water. And then sometime before crucifixion happened, the Christ spirit left. So that means that Jesus was not fully and eternally God. He wasn't the eternal God before his, before his virgin birth. He was not the eternal God on that cross for you. The Christ spirit, whatever that is, and I've heard that, that phrase used in modern times, came upon him and left. Well, John has to beat on this. Go to chapter 5 of 1 John and verses 6 to 8. This Jesus is he who came by water and blood. What's he referring to? The water of baptism and the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ, not by the water only. In other words, the Christ Spirit didn't come upon him and then leave him, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So John has to deal with that kind of weird teaching. You say, it sounds almost cultic. Well, there are some cults that believe some of these things today. Now, why is that important? If you have these heretical views of Jesus that he was, he was not fully God, or that he was not fully human, you don't have a savior that'll save you on that cross. 
These heretical views destroy not only the true humanity of Jesus, but also what's known as the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross for you, because Jesus must not only have been truly God to die for you on that cross, but also truly human, a truly physical man who actually suffered and died upon the cross in order to be the acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The biblical view of Jesus affirms he was completely human as well as fully divine when he died on that cross for you. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live and died an eternal death as God on that cross that you couldn't face. This is dangerous teaching if you don't believe that, folks. Hebrews chapter 2, if you go there for just a moment. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus likewise, partook of the same things that through death, flesh and blood, he was fully human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The implication is if he wasn't fully human, he couldn't have finished the accomplishment on the cross. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that's us. Jesus wasn't fully human and fully God, you're not delivered. He goes on and talks about it in greater detail. He's the faithful high priest now because he was made like his brothers, verse 17, in every respect, fully human. I've told you this many times, and I use a phrase to put it together. You can't be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. If you want to take a moment and write that down, I don't mind. What he's going to say in this book is you can't be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. You have to know who he was when he was on that cross. You have to know who he was as he lived that life. You have to know who he was as he rose from that tomb. And he is fully God and fully man. That's why you can't, however gracious you want to be, allow a person who is as sincere as they can be, but who's involved in cultic teaching, say to you that they are just as Christian as you are, if you believe the Bible. You just can't do it. In mercy to them, you need to say, as I have often said to them, I'm sorry, my friend, as sincere as you are, you're wrong about Jesus, and you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. Do you have the boldness to say that? It's mercy to say that. There's lots of other things Gnosticism taught, and time's running out for me, and I realize it. They thought that the matter was evil and the spirit was good. And so some of them said, well, you know, when I get involved in immorality, it's really not me. It's just my naughty body. <laughs> and, you know, the body's evil. We all know it. Sometimes it just, just wants what it wants, gets the better of me. And, and so they began rationalizing their sin. They said in, in chapter 3 and verse 4 that they could disregard God's law. 1 John 3, 4, they could disregard God's law. John has one phrase for that. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, sleeping around, whatever, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John, didn't say, didn't, John said there's no white space there just because you felt your, your body made you do it. Some of them took that doctrine so far as to say that they didn't even worry about sin anymore. Sin was detached from the good me. And so they said, I don't even have a problem with sin. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. If we say, this is 1 John 1, 8 in your Bibles, John said, if we say we have no sin. Who was saying that? The false teachers and all the people being deceived by them. Don't you think they had a following? Lots of people want to say, there is no sin, I'm in. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John said this was so serious in chapter 4, he called them antichrists. There's one great antichrist coming, capital A, but there are, there are all kinds of antichrists present, lowercase a, who, who believe in the same thing, who say sin is not an issue and Christ is not who we believe he is. You say, how's that relevant today? I'll tell you what, when I talk with people, particularly people in the younger stages of life who are trying to follow Jesus, one of the things they tell me is one of their greatest discouragements as, as a young person today is they can't find any obedient Christians to stand with them and encourage them when it comes to the morality. They'll go to church with people and they'll go on Facebook and see them talk about Christian things, but they know their double lives especially in the very area of sexuality. And they say, how can I fight the battle? Even among my Christian friends, there's no difference between what they're doing sexually and what the world's doing sexually. How do I put that together? Well, they're saying I accepted Jesus, but so I got my spiritual ticket punch, but I'm a good person inside. And what I'm doing in that part of my life, I don't think it's big, as big an issue. Maybe you can relate to this. This, this whole deception is... Is, is around today. Last part of it is they also claimed elevated knowledge, which is a higher truth known only to them. And so they began to say, yeah, what John is teaching you, what, what the gospels say is part, is, is part of the truth, but we have this higher knowledge and we have added things to the Bible. Ever heard that in our time? We're initiated. We've got mystical knowledge. Come into our knowledge path this is why John had to say in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him who abides in, from him abides in you. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, he's not saying you don't need your pastor. He's not saying you don't need the writings of the Bible. You don't need the apostles. He's talking there about these people that say, oh, that's great, but we have spiritual secret knowledge. He says, you don't need to have to listen to one of those people. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him, the Holy Spirit confirms the word of God. You don't need to go anywhere else. So you see, point after point after point, and these people, these false teachers got so proud that they began pulling people out of churches. And they formed their own secret societies and they would pull good believers out of good churches and often split churches and we know that happened to the churches that john was talking about because in chapter 2 verse 19 i'm almost done by the way chapter 2 verse 19 he says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us he has some discouraged churches thinking is there some secret knowledge is there something we don't know, John? After all you taught us about Jesus and about the gospel you wrote that we've read and the, all the epistles of Paul that we have, is there something more? And John says, no. In fact, if you want something more, you're not in the true body of Christ. Don't worry about those people. He had to comfort that church. You ever been through a church split? I have. It's horrible. Makes you doubt everything about your leadership and your faith and your values. But hey, if you hold on to the word of God, that's the mooring place for you. Well, that's the story of 
the heresy that John gently but clearly confronted. Now let me close. You might say, okay, pretty deep. You were right to warn me. (laughs) And I do see it in the verses. So I believe the history you've told me, and I believe about this false teaching, but you're kind of losing me. How does this apply to my Christian life today? And with that, I would just leave you with John's legacy. Because John's legacy is simply this. Everything he wrote about 1,900 years ago is still relevant today. Because Christians still struggle with living joyful, loving, and confident lives, don't we? Is that just me? No, we need to know the riches we have in Christ. We need to get into this book and find out more about how great it is to know him. But at the same time, the same doctrinal problems still exist in our world. I want to close by giving you proof of that. So I told you about these false teachers, and I told you about some of the pathways they were leading the churches into, which were troubles for years. There was a survey done in 2022, so this is less than a year old, called the State of Theology Survey by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, and they asked evangelicals what they believed. And sure enough, this might blow your mind, but the top four things they believed that were wrong, same things as in 1 John. Hold on, I'm going to go through this fast. By the way, they said, what's an evangelical? Somebody who strongly agreed that the Bible is the highest authority, the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior, that Jesus' death would remove the penalty of sin, and that trust in him alone brings salvation. If you can answer yes to those four, you got into the survey. So they sound like evangelicals in every church, right? Here's what blew my mind. Top four things that they were wrong about. They were asked to answer the question, the Bible, do you agree or disagree? The Bible... Uh, I'm sorry, let me go back. They they answered, and and 26% of them said they believed this about the Bible. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Do you get what I just said? 26% of evangelicals said the Bible is not literally true. It contains helpful accounts of ancient myths. Whoa. Didn't the Gnostic teachers say, We have added knowledge. The Bible's helpful, but we have greater insight. We, in our minds, sit in judgment on that Bible. It's helpful, but what we think has greater authority. And so they put their truth, other truth, above God's truth. I still think we have a problem with that, don't you? What about Jesus and who he was? 43% of these evangelicals said, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, end of quote. Did you hear that? 43% of the evangelicals said, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's an offshoot of, of Gnosticism, which later became Arianism. That was so dangerous to the church, they held a conference called the, the Council of Nicaea 300 years after the church started and called that total heresy. How in the world are we getting people in our churches that to that level don't understand Jesus Christ was, is, and ever shall be eternal God. He's the only one that can save you. Oh, he's just merely human. Here's the third thing. 57% of evangelicals last year agreed with this statement, quote, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. (laughs) I'm so glad some of you are going, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Number one, I'm married. Number two, I read my Bible. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. No, Jesus was, was I mean, the people are, were sinners by nature. 
incredible. And here's the last one. And this makes sense. If the other three are wrong, here was the fourth one that said, 56% of evangelical respondents affirmed, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, end quote. 56%. In other words, there are many ways to God. Well, of course, if you sit in judgment with your mind on the Bible, of course you're going to say that. But Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, didn't he? I think you see the great disconnect, the great problem. Wow. Well, we need John, don't we? We've got to have his passion for Jesus. I need the encouragement that's going to be coming in these weeks and months. And some of us may need the gentle but tough correction. I look forward to going through this book with you, and we'll begin digging in next time. 